The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Future Sox podcast. Today, what a treat we have for you. Some originals of the Future Sox scene. First, let me introduce Dan Santamarita. Dan, it is a pleasure, as always, to speak with you. It is also a pleasure to know that you are part of this conversation. So good to see you, man, or talk to you at least. Yeah, happy to be on. James Fox, senior editor here at Future Sox. Pleasure, James, as always. Hello. Hello. And Matt Cassidy. Boy, Matt. How how are you is the question. Uh, we wanted to get you on. This is the first time really we've talked to you since you handed the keys over to Clinton Cole a while back. Uh, it is it is such a pleasure to uh, to have you on the podcast here today. How, how are you doing outside of the Future Sox scene now that obviously you're on the outside looking in, but still a part of the Future Sox family? How, how are you dealing with the current situation here and, and I guess real life away from Future Sox? I mean, I'm going through what a lot of uh, families are going through. There's four of us, my wife and my kids here in the house with me. And the house that feels big when you're in and out of it suddenly feels a lot smaller when all four of you are in it all the time. Um, but, you know, we're better off than most people. I mean, we're able to work from home and our kids are, are in a school district where they're able to do school from home. So I'm really not going to complain because, honestly, there are people in a lot worse situation than us. So we're not doing okay. And, and I'm, I'm kind of glad to hop onto the podcast here. I've certainly got time on my hands. Yeah. And it's good to hear from you guys again, too. Well, we have plenty to ask you, Matt, about the current situation, of course, how it relates to the minor league scene, as well as some of these proposals put out potentially by Major League Baseball, at least what they're working through. And, of course, all of this is taken with the general fact that we are at the mercy of this virus and our health officials trying to get to a spot where you know, they feel we're safe to go out in public again, especially in a, in a controlled setting. But, Matt... I wanted to revisit a couple of topics with you and just get your overall feel about the White Sox leading into 2020. Of course, the minor league scene built up to the point where we're combining this effort in the big league level with the White Sox. You see these prospects translate now to what we figure to be sustained success with a lot of these extensions that we saw. So give me your overall feel of where the White Sox stand today, Matt. Well, I mean, obviously, there's there's a sort of bittersweet aspect to this because this really did start to feel as you went to the offseason, like finally, after, you know, some, some uh, I would say, sort of like half starts and then finally going to the season, you thought, you know, 
this is when it's coming together enough that this should be a team that is at least competitive to go to the postseason. And then the extensions came and it opened the window up wider. And you start to get all excited and say, hey, I've spent years watching and writing about these guys coming through. And now we're finally going to see it translate into the majors. Maybe not right away, but it seems like the window is opening. And then the virus blew through the window. Um, and it's, it really does <laughs> make it kind of suck. You know, you hope that there's some kind of major league season there, no matter what it is, just so that the Sox can get out there and prove it. Because the boy Sox fans have been waiting for so long for this to jump in there. And now we finally got it. I would sure hate to lose the whole season. Dan, great to have you on. Um, or Matt, sorry. And, 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 and uh, my, old guy number one, old guy number yeah, two, whatever. Exactly. Yeah. I'm like reading his name right now off the screen. So, you know, one of the reasons that I wanted to talk to you was just the minor league um, season and landscape in general. So even if these baseball teams start playing in like July or something, it doesn't really seem feasible that the minor league stadiums are going to be open for fans. And it's not really a sport that, that they can have without fans in attendance from like a revenue standpoint. So I guess like, could you just, what it, what do you think about um, what that would do to like mo- the majority of these minor league teams? Like if, if they don't have a minor league season this year, well, I, I kind of look at it from two tracks. There's the minor league baseball teams as businesses, and then there's the you know practicality of playing. From the practicality of playing point of view, you have to remember these teams play in leagues, and these leagues are spread out over multiple states and multiple areas. So you can't just say, okay, well, let's say you want to get uh, uh, you know the Birmingham Barons ready to play. Let's say Alabama is in a better position virus-wise. The rules are loosening up. They can start to play. Great. Unfortunately, they play in the Southern League with teams in like six or seven other states, some of which aren't going to be ready. So for practical purposes, it's about the lowest common denominator and all those locations where the teams play would have to be ready. And as time goes on, the likelihood of that for most of these leagues starts to go down a lot. So I think from a practical point of view, it's not about opening the stadium so much as it is about getting the all the locations of the teams to be ready to allow it legally and, and in terms of the controls that need to be put in place. So that makes it really, really hard. Um, and then from the business point of view, you got a different problem. Um, some of these, some of these minor league teams are not going to make it. They're not going to make it this season. And then even if they make it this season, they're not going to make it through the off season. Um, these are low margin businesses that have really low revenue as it is, and their revenue is basically shot to zero now for the year. Their costs are lower, but they're not zero, and and that means they're hemorrhaging cash. And I think you're going to see that situation that MLB kind of hinted at in the fall about wanting to drop some teams might happen on its own from a business point of view, because some of these teams are just not going to survive. We're going to get to the spring of 2021 and a bunch of these minor league teams that have thrown up their hands saying, we can't operate. We're done. See ya. Um, so I, I, my, my personal view is I'd be surprised at this point if most of the minor leagues actually got seasons in. Instead, I think they're going to be playing backfields. That's that's my feel. I hope I'm wrong. I really hope I'm wrong. And I think that the teams that do survive financially will be ready to open the stadium. You go to some team that could be, you know, the Dash or the Cannonballers now called or whatever. I mean, they can get their already staff up pretty quick. And that stadium is already maintained, so they can have it ready quick. So if they survive financially, I think they can get the stadiums ready in a hurry. The problem is you can't get, as I said, all the teams in one league to be allowed to play. And I think that's what's going to be the major problem. Yeah. And I mean, you referenced like, you know, just like the owner's plan in general of like cutting the minor leagues. And there was that study that said that it would probably be like 42 teams. And, you know, a lot of those teams were in, um, 
you know, in the, some of them were in the pioneer league, like the, uh, the great fall, the great falls team is one of the teams that probably would get caught. Mm-hmm. So I, I guess like, what, it, what are your thoughts on that? Like in general, you've advocated for the Sox to like add another, uh, affiliate in the past. So I guess like, d- does that make any sense to you? Like cutting out the affiliates that maybe don't make that much money, maybe the travel doesn't make any sense and kind of go to a model where there's more like independent league teams and then full season teams like they want. Uh, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't matter from the major league point of view, whether the minor league teams are making money. Cause here's the thing, there's going to be rich people who like toys no matter what. And they're going to be looking <laughs> for something to buy. And I'm serious. This is the, these guys don't make tons of revenue every year on these teams, but they want to buy something like that. I think you're always going to have that. So I think it really is, you know, what baseball wants to be in terms of a minor league system. Do they want to be, you know, more controlled by their major league clubs? Or do they want to be more independent? As far as adding teams, obviously this year that ain't happening. Um, I, I, I've advocated before that maybe it made sense for the Sox to do so if they continue to open up the international spigot short term forget about it. Um, I think the question becomes, you know, when these teams start dropping off, which they will, you know, whether you want to then start adding back afterwards. Because I think that you're losing – I think minor league baseball gives baseball an, a better chance than most professional sports of getting good talent where they wouldn't have found it otherwise because of the size of the system. I think you're losing that if you give up those teams. So I would I would prefer a larger system than a smaller one, all else equal, if we weren't dealing with COVID. Dan, let me ask you this. Let me throw this by you. I want your opinion on, I guess, the current situation in thinking when baseball will return, if at all, this season. I guess reading what's being reported because it's clear that the owners across major league baseball are doing their best to get the season in, in sub capacity, whether it's all in Arizona, you split it between the cactus and grapefruit leagues. Uh, What is the most realistic situation in your opinion for baseball to return in a safe capacity? Uh, Well, I think the first step, whenever it is, the timeframe is still, I think up in the air, no one knows if they say they, anything they're, they're guessing. Uh, there's too many variables that, that, that are out of uh, everyone's control. But uh, I think the first step will be whenever it does come back, I think it almost certainly will be with no fans because baseball, like every other one of these sports, these major sports that wants to come back to make money. And we see it in some of the other countries in, um, in Asia that are further along in, in the process uh, with the virus. And so they're at, starting to ease up uh, the constraints and, and go back to normal in some capacity. Uh, they're, they're trying to play um, different sports, whether it's basketball or baseball, and, um, and there's, the fans have not been considered yet. So that's a ways away. I think uh, when and where and how they're going to do the season, uh, who knows? Like I don't even want to throw anything out there. Um, I think it's plausible to think some form of the 2020 season happens, but it's going to be like the, the original May, June thing that they were throwing out there uh, as like an idea was never realistic. And I think they probably knew that, but that was sort of like, let's plan for it in case some miracle happens. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's going to be late summer at, at the earliest and there's not going to be fans. I think at all in 2020, I think I feel more confident about that because I don't see any way that we'll be able to put big crowds together um, until we have a vaccine. So uh, I think, you know, you're going to look at a weird season no matter what form it comes in. And I want to add something about the minor league team. I'm at the business side. 
even if they survive this year, I would expect business to be slower for the next year, maybe two, because you're looking at a population that's going to have less spending power because of how the economy has been affected. And minor league baseball is, you know, a cheap form of entertainment, but still something people could easily cut out of their budget. Um, so that's another factor. These teams that survive may come back to a world where they're getting less revenue anyway. So there's another factor to think about. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. It's something that we often don't consider, you know, with, with minor league affiliates working under the umbrella of a major league organization, I guess sometimes we don't think about how these organizations, regardless of who they're affiliated with, have to maintain their own sources of revenue, right? And a lot of that revenue is made during the season. So it's clear that these organizations are going to suffer uh, individually. Now, when it comes to players this season on the minor league scene, I want to piggyback a little bit off of what Matt said, Dan, and, and get your take on the idea of players getting their work in just strictly on the backfields and kind of just axing an official minor league season altogether. Of course, we're not at that point yet, but a realistic option, I guess, is on the table in that regard. Yeah, that's that's most realistic, right? I mean, the backfields are the easiest way to do it. It keeps them in the same area, but I think that's an extra layer. I mean, honestly, you think about any plan that involves the major league season in terms of what they're trying to plan for. If you want um, to minimize risk, you want to do it in a way that the fewest number of people possible are involved. And that means probably like, for example, just something that came to head in my head is like uh, broadcasters probably announcing remotely from a booth. I mean, as a soccer fan, I see that a lot like uh, English language announcers uh, giving um commentary of like an Italian or Spanish league game from a studio in Florida just because it's cheaper. So something like that, I think we'll see. So when you're thinking of steps like that, minor league teams uh, are probably, or minor league games, even in a um, backfield scenario, probably just not a priority. So I I just don't see, I don't see that happening like at all. I I don't think we get a minor league season in 2020. I, I think maybe they can get, enough people like because they're going to need deeper rosters and they're going to try and keep guys going they can get like some form of workouts and like you know semi-formal scrimmages but even like even that seems like you're just adding more people to the equation and i think you probably want to minimize that so i think think it could be a lost year i think dan is, is, is certainly right about about the you know it's really hard mechanically to not deal with the crowds but because minor leagues don't care so much about the TV side and some of the, the outside, you know, the fans aspect is, 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 is I think Dan was kind of getting as not as high a priority for them. Um, I mean, not as prior priority from the more major league point of view, looking at the minors. But I do think you can play like in like, I think Dan was kind of getting to this like an instruct type league if the rules lift enough where like they're playing games and they're working out. But it's a, it's a, it's a really limited format. That's not like a real proper season like you'd think. Yeah. Of. Yeah, I mean, like, if they're, if they're all, like, at the facility, like, they could play backfield games. I mean, if or if, like, something happens where, you know, like, they, they are playing in, like, certain segments of the country with no fans. I guess, like, you know, like, every org's players could, like, go to the spring training facility and they, they could just be there. But I just, like, think we're so far away from, from knowing that it's, I, I mean, I'd be really surprised if the minor league players were all like basically on ice for a year. But I, I mean, I don't know, man. It, 
that that seems crazy, but it, it's also like Dan, you're right that they're not gonna they're not gonna take on more risk by having more people, especially when like you know the the general population like doesn't really care about that. They just like want to see major league games on TV. Right, you're talking about um, you know this is, we're we're all a minor league prospect you know site and podcast here, but the reality is the risk reward of starting a major league season in 2020 the reward is all based on the money of playing games you can put on TV, knowing that you're already not going to get, or assuming you're not going to get the reward of having the revenue from crowds. And, and Manfred, Rob Manfred um, was on an interview today on Fox business where he said 40% of the revenue is Gator gate um, related. So they're already assuming they're going to lose that. So uh, you're, you're looking at just getting the TV revenue from playing a season and Playing minor league players just to have them develop is not giving you revenue, so it's not going to be priority. I think well, that's. I think it's a danger. I think that in the long term, the, the, the major league teams don't necessarily care about putting the minor leaguers in a good situation, but I think they certainly care about them doing something to at least staying in fighting shape and 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 you know not losing skill because a year for those minor leaguers is a big part of their development time. I mean, I think so. They are going to. I mean, I understand what you're saying. You're right that revenue wise. They don't care. But all those teams are also, especially nowadays, looking at their future. And they certainly don't want to send their players home and say, live with your parents for a year and we'll see you in a year. I, they would, I think they're going to do everything they can to avoid that, even if it means uh, not doing anything until August and then playing what amounts to being a muscled-up uh, fall instruct league. But I think they want to try to do something, anything they can. Yeah, I mean, and maybe it means uh, if by Thanksgiving or the winter – Instead of having an off season, the minor leaguers are in their off season now, basically, and they would play the fall winter league or whatever, and and not right. have an off season going into twenty twenty one, basically. Um, and they can manage the workloads around that, but I just don't think. Um, I mean, look, we're, we're not in ideal circumstances, right? I think there are sure. certain tough decisions that are going to have to be made, and I think when you look at it practically, I just don't think that is a decision you can make in a good conscience to say, yeah, it's important to make sure these guys are out there for just developmental purposes. I think that's something you kind of have to put by the wayside uh, in the short term. Well, depending on the risk, right? I mean, isn't that what that's the discussion's all about? I mean, obviously in the current environment, I 100% agree with you. You can't put them out there right now or anytime soon. But if things are a lot better in August and the risk level looks a lot lower, then I think that, you know, it starts to be a different equation. Yeah. I mean, there's so many factors in terms of, you know, because we're not going to have a vaccine by then, but no, but if we might have treatments, might have lower test, case loads. Yeah. Yeah, if there's a way to test quickly and efficiently high numbers of people, um, then, I mean, that's certainly the first step for having the major league season start. I can guarantee you one thing. The major league season will start well before any sort of minor league activities do. Sure. So um, they're going to scale it up once they get to that point. Because the risk-reward makes sense to try to do it earlier for the major leaguers. Those guys want to get paid. Right. I'm sure the minor leaguers are excited to get back to action. They're going to be antsy, but um, I, I just don't think that's the first priority. So it's going to take time, which is not something you have a lot of when you're talking about getting any sort of 2020 action in. Matt, here's something that we went over a little bit a couple of weeks ago. And, and what we learned because of these circumstances is that they are shortening the draft this year. And in terms of people that we're, we're in contact with, they believe that in the future as a result of this is more, and not so much as a test run. I mean, obviously this is what we're dealing with today, but 
maybe the draft in the future is going to be cut down from 40 rounds. And we're using this as an example to say, hey, you know, 10 rounds, we're getting a lot of value in our picks. Um, but also, it doesn't have to be 40 rounds, the MLB amateur draft. I- I'm curious your take on the current situation related to these college level seniors who did grant or were eligible to return, uh, maintain their eligibility should they choose, but also these high school players, these seniors projected to go in the draft and how it affects their stock and I guess their professional career moving forward, whether they want to go to a JUCO or enlist in in a four-year university. I mean, there's so many variables coming into play, but because of the draft now being cut down, I'm very curious on, on your take on this whole process. Well, I mean, you're kind of asking two, to me two different themes of questions there. The latter question you asked about really was these players, and I feel terrible for them. I mean, these whether it's high school seniors or college juniors or seniors, any of them, uh, JUCO players, any of them that were eligible that might have been drafted this year are really in a tough place. I mean, there's a few of them they are still going to get drafted, but they're not going to get as much money. And then the ones that don't get drafted, it sounds to me, last I saw, like they're going to set a, a cap on UDFA signing bonuses um, so effectively for a lot of those guys, they're either not going to make the money or, or they're going to not sign at all. You know, I, I mean, there's no good scenario and I can't give you an answer on those because it depends on the player. Every player's math is different every off season looking at that. And, and I think that it's hard to, to say, Oh, all the players should try to do this or all the players should try to do that. They're all different, but they're all getting screwed. Um, the <laughs> systemically, I think that shortening the draft like this, I understand the reasons they're doing it. I'm not sure it was the smart thing. I would like to see maybe they would consider doing a draft and then another one late in the fall to pick up the rest, as opposed to just saying, oh, after 10 rounds or five rounds, you can sign UDFAs, but only up to 20K or something. I'd rather they do is say, you can draft this many rounds. You can only draft, you can only pick up a few other UDFA players, a very small number, and we'll see you again in November or December and do a secondary draft get the system back together that way by the time you get to the 2021 draft you're back to normal because otherwise what you're doing is you're taking part of your problem and you're shoving it in the next year right and maybe that has to happen but maybe it doesn't but you're closing off your options before you should so i think systemically they're making a mistake approaching it that way i would rather keep the system as close to normal and static as possible even though all the scouts are going to say well i don't know what i'm getting out of these players i would rather that than the current situation but obviously not my decision yeah, Matt. Now we've we've talked about this on the podcast quite a bit, like since it's happened with the draft, and never never let a good crisis go to waste, right? But that that's that's basically so. Like, look, like does the draft need to be forty? No, not necessarily. But this right. is their way to make it. You know, they say that it could be as short as five. A lot of people around baseball and some people that I've talked to think that it'll still ultimately be ten. But their goal is it's going to be twenty from now on, like at the most. So you know they they've effectively cut this thing from forty to twenty. But the part that doesn't really make any sense is like they you know they talk about how the how owners want to save money and they don't really like spending on the draft in general. They're not really saving that much money. I mean it's it's wow. really screwing some of the kids that you know you've talked about like you know a, a college junior. Yeah, he might he might take one hundred and twenty five k in round twelve. Well now now those guys can't do that. So those those guys basically have to go back to school and they have no leverage or they can sign for $20,000, which, which is absolutely absurd. So that, you know, that's, that's the biggest problem here. I mean, even, even going 10 rounds, the bonus pools are pretty much the same. The yeah. owners save money in the first year because they're only giving kids a hundred K up front and then paying the rest over the next two years. 
But th- this thing is not really a money saver. It's just, you know, more evidence that they're just trying to cut this thing to 20 rounds and then ultimately cut out a bunch of minor league teams. I don't, I don't understand the, the long-term thinking of that either. Even putting aside the, oh, we're going to save a few pennies here and there. Like, you, I mean, what, what, first of all, what do you do after the 20 rounds? Let's say things, forget about coronavirus and all this stuff. We get back to a normalcy in a year or two and like, well, we're only doing 20 rounds. Okay. So are you setting limits on the undrafted free agents then? If you are, and you're just damping all that down, then the question becomes like, well, you're going to get all kinds of Wild West contracts. You're going to get people screwing over the system there. You're also going to be signaling to a bunch of athletes that maybe baseball isn't for them. You're closing down part of your talent pool by doing that. It, it really makes no sense to me. Long term, I think it hurts baseball. The people that are trying to save money or make this easier, I think they're hurting themselves. Yeah, and I, I, mean, I agree there. I mean, even look at the White Sox last year, rounds five through ten. They took six or they took five seniors. They paid each of them like $10,000 a piece, right? So mm-hmm. those are the type of guys where in a 20-round draft, like, yeah, I mean, you, the area scout will cut a deal with a kid. You'll still get guys like that. But to your point, Micah Johnson spoke out like after this whole thing happened, and I don't really remember what his bonus was, but as, a, you know, a ninth-round pick, I think he got probably like, you know, a little over like 300000 or something like that. And he basically said, like, you know, he used that money to pay for some of his schooling, to give his parents money. He he said that, you know, if if he was limited to 20K, he basically wouldn't have had a baseball career. He would have had to, like, go right. work, you know, in a factory or go, do, you know, go do whatever he would have had to do. So that, you know, and, you know, he's he's a, you know, a player from from the Big Ten. So, you know, like, it's, it's going to affect, yeah, like a ton of guys like that who just baseball won't be an option anymore. Dan, I'm curious your take. Uh, anything that caught your attention there? What matter James had to say? I know this is it's different, and I think there's a lot of levels to this. But anything that that stuck out to you? Well, I think the one thing whenever we talk about the draft and how they're, uh, especially compared to other sports, maybe basketball would apply similarly, where they they know more about prospects from an earlier age. But I mean, I know from from the previous podcast where you guys had guys on, like they have been scouting guys, they scout guys for years, right? And and pretty much the scouting season for draft players starts once the previous draft ends and they already have a book on the guys going into that. So they have information. So that side of it, I don't think they're going to get, it's not like they're going into this thing blind. I mean, sure, they'd love to have more info and right. guys' stocks will go up and down over the course of a spring season. But I think of all leagues, they're probably one of the more uh, in a position to do this uh, during the stoppage. So um, I, I think altering the draft is is weird um, because they don't need to because of the way the system is already built. But they have information. These guys aren't going straight to the major league rosters. Uh, so from that perspective, I think tinkering with it is weird, which is why I'm, I agree with James. This is more like they wanted to do this for one reason or another, and this was just the excuse, but that's, right. you know. Yes, I mean, so I mean, just and this is, you know, I guess like part that people aren't really talking about, but like Spencer Torkelson's the first baseman at Arizona State. He might be the number one overall pick. He gets an eight million dollar bonus, you know, from the Tigers. The one place where this helps the owners is like, you know, he gets taken number one overall. They pay him a hundred thousand dollars this year. Next year at this time, he gets another four million. The year after that, he gets another four million. So, I mean, technically, they are saving like up front. But, but I mean, the bonus pools are still the same. So, like, in the long run, they're not saving any money by getting rid of 20 rounds of the back end of a draft where you're not really paying anybody anything anyway. Yeah. And I would say, not that 
I know you're making this point. I, they could probably go down to 30 without losing anything. Um, 20s when you maybe there's a few guys. I mean, what we're on was Bryce Bush taken in, right? He yeah, was pretty 30, late. 33. Right. And, that's, and that's a guy where Bryce Bush either at that point has to decide that he wants to play for basically no money or he has to go to Mississippi State. I mean, well, and those are, you know. He was 33rd, but he was trick 33rd, right? I mean, he's the kind of guy, if they really wanted him, you know, they've also done that with the 15th round with, uh, who's that guy, that Missouri pitcher that was a big pitcher that did as basically the backup plan. Yeah, Montes uh, Dale. Right. They could do that in round 19 or something. But my, but I mean, you're right. I think Dan's right that when you look at past round 30, look at what the White Sox do most years, four or five of the picks they make in the 30s are not real picks. I mean, literally, they're guys they know they're not going to sign. So I think, yeah, going to 30, yeah, probably not a big deal. Going to 20, that's more of a difference in terms of the, the talent you're fielding and who you're recruiting in a little bit. Not huge, but it does make a difference. Yeah, and then the, the strategies would alter, right? I mean, you, Bush would not get taken in the 33rd round right. if there were only 30 rounds. They would have probably made that play earlier. Um, right. So I, I think in some ways we're overstating the changes because just we, we don't know how the strategy would change. And the, and the strategy in the draft is, I mean, look at draft pools, right? That has already drastically changed how teams are allowed to approach the draft. Um, you know, I, we didn't, before that, it was pretty much a free for all with the same six or seven teams. And it wasn't all the big market teams. It was just whichever teams wanted to spend money in the draft would spend money in the draft and get guys. So they've, there's been drastic changes in terms of, uh, the number of uh, rounds, I think it was 50 not that long ago. Uh, there's been changes in, in how you're allowed to spend money. So I, I think they can tinker with the draft still and it won't be catastrophic. I think some of the things they're saying are a bit alarming, though. Something I wanted to ask you, you all, and this is more about the Major League Baseball scene and how it's going to be affected this year. Should they play into Thanksgiving or even early December would you would you all have a problem with that? Do you think that there's there's any issue there? Of course, it pushes back the off season, and you're kind of combining uh, that that sort of period and free agency and everything, and it's a quick turnaround to next year. But it, do you think that's a realistic option, or, or do you see any problems with that, Dan? I'll start with you. Yeah, there's a lot of potential problems with it, but I think it makes a lot of sense. I think for, as a fan, sure, play in February. I don't care. Like if you're going to play in Arizona. Until February, I, I'm whatever. Sure, like I'm looking outside my window, the same stuff every day. <laughs> like uh, I'll take it. Um, but I, so I, from my perspective and our perspective, I don't think that really should matter, right? I think you have to look at uh, the reality that, and because this is a lot of business decisions for them, you're going to run into a crowded sports calendar because everyone's going to be doing the same thing. Um, so that's a factor that maybe you want to avoid. But I mean, honestly, like. The only thing, and I saw a quote, um, I'm mixing sports here, but Drew Doughty of the, the Los Angeles Kings, a little hockey reference, even though I don't know too much about hockey, but um, said, he's like, yeah, I don't want us to run super late because then we're ruining the next season and maybe a third season if we run the playoffs late that second season, right? So we could see this have a knock-on effect or it could affect three years, right? If you play late into 2020, and that pushes back the start into 2021. And then the off season leading to 2022 is also short because of that. So like you could run into like this affecting three seasons pretty easily. 
but also that's a better option than not playing a season to Major League Baseball, I feel like, right? So they're the only ones here who are going to lose an entire season, whereas hockey and, and basketball were about seven-eighths of the way through the regular season. Uh, and football doesn't start until the fall, so they probably won't be as affected. But, yeah, I mean, baseball could lose an entire year to this, so they're probably the most uh, at risk if they don't do anything. So, yeah, running late into the calendar year is, is fine. And Matt here, I wanted to go to you, and that's sort of what I, I was hoping to, to get out of that question is a matter of the domino effect, how it affects, of course, next year, the year after that, and it makes a lot of sense what Dan was saying. And also, too, I was thinking about how if you're competing with multiple sports, say basketball picks up again and then the NFL, where where is this revenue coming from in terms of TV deals and all that stuff? I mean, I don't know. There's there's a lot that goes into it, but I'm I'm curious if there's any concerns that you have, Matt, about baseball picking up and then possibly running until early December? Well, I mean, one thing hasn't been mentioned, of course, for practical purposes is, is if you're playing until December, that means you're playing somewhere not the normal stadiums, even for, forget about the fans, you're not playing at the cell in December. So obviously you're, you're losing that part of that too. Um, and, and Dan has mentioned that before. I mean, they're assuming they're losing the gate revenue anyway. Um, but I, I think uh, to, to further to Dan's point, I think he's right that pushing things back is better than having no season at all. From a minor league perspective, if we're going to go back to the sort of the future Sox part of this world here, I don't know that, you know, I think if you're going to play in the fall, the revenue is not going to be a thing anyway, because you're not going to get any butts in the seats. The other thing to consider, though, is conditioning. Um, you know, you go to a minor league affiliate, and I've talked to, I don't know how many dozens or 100 players or whatever over the years, and I've done interviews sometimes late in the season, like let's say August. Those guys playing a full minor league season, especially when they're only just out of school or maybe in their second year of school, by the time they get to August, playing five, six months, especially in those deep south teams and that heat and humidity, they're pretty worn down. I mean, even the really good athletes, they lose weight. They'll lose 10 or 15 pounds as the season goes on. Um, and you have to be careful. If they do start a fall league, which would be great if they could get a few months of play in the fall, you don't necessarily want to run it all the way to February send them away for a week and then start spring training and then run them through a full season. Cause what's going to happen is you're going to see a huge spike in injuries as you get to the summer. So I do think as Dan kind of hinted, you'd have to in the minor league season, make further adjustments. Say, okay, if we're going to play a weird sort of partial season from September through December in Arizona and Florida, you know, you're going to make it short and you're going to cut down the number of games. They're not going to play every day. And then in the spring, you're going to say, let's start a few weeks late, have it a slightly shorter season, Try not to break them down. So I think you got to be careful with that too. All right, really good stuff, fellas. That was uh, engaging conversation. I mean, this is a lot of what's happening, you know, behind the scenes, and you, you take all of it into account. And I think you all elucidated pretty well. Well, let, let's shift gears a little bit here, Matt. And I wanted to focus this with you. Uh, been a while since, of course, you, you've contributed to Future Socks, but you, you were such a huge reason as to why we are as as a unit so credible today. Um, you really built it from the ground up and revisiting a lot of the previous preseason lists, the top thirties and all that. It's, it's fun to look back at some of the players that of course, in the system we considered in the top 10 and Dan, you mentioned this in our Slack conversation. I just, I found some of the names. If you don't mind me reading them, here's the, here's the top 10 from 2013 preseason, uh, according according to Future Sox. We have Courtney Hawkins, Trace Thompson, Simon Castro, Eric Johnson, Yomer Sanchez, Keon Barnum, Andre Rienzo, Keenan Walker, Scott Snodgrass, and Chris 
back. Does that bring back any memories? God. <laughs> uh, it's good times. Hey, Keon Barnum, of course, the American Association Player of the Year. Keenan Walker ended up playing for the Windy City Thunderbolts in the Frontier League, and I believe that was his last stop as a professional. Uh, Eric Johnson, by the way, was mentioned as uh, a part of the Charlotte Knights uh, all-time team, all-decade team, I should say. So, hey, I mean, some professionals that had a career. Yeah. Yeah, so. <laughs> want to talk first about that. <laughs> yeah, I don't. So, Matt, uh, you, you did this for an awful long time, and, you you know, you had – Many, you know, what, multiple rankings lists per year, and you would go see a lot of these minor league players, like, play in the minor league. So just, I guess, a couple of your notorious, like, hits and a couple misses, I guess, for me. Somebody you thought that was going to, you know, be really good and ultimately turned into nothing, and then I guess somebody that you recognized, and then, yeah, like, the other way, too. Like, somebody that maybe you recognized early that was actually something. Okay. I mean, first, before I say that, I want to respond to something Mike said earlier, just for the record. I didn't, I don't want to take credit for building future socks, but I did. You got a guy on the phone here, by the way, Dan, who was part of building future socks. I kind of took it in the second phase and, and I'm glad I was there to help grow it, but just want to make sure the credit is going where it's due here. Um, you know, I came after Dan did and, you know, Dan and Jason, some of the other guys who started it really got the foot in the door. All I did was open it a little further. Um, but I'm glad I, was, I had the chance to, to be the EIC when I was. Um, as far as hits and misses, boy, I had a lot of misses. Um, trying to think of the ones that, that hurt a lot. You know, it's funny there. I always think of the ones that Dan would, would, would hit me about <laughs> on my list when we would argue about who should go where. And so, you know, there are guys, I mean, what's funny is I'll point at Sebi Zavala and say it's both. <laughs> Seriously. And I'll say it's both in the sense that, you know, early on, having seen him in person, having talked to him, whatever, and, and talking to Tim Contreras and other people who'd seen him as well. And, and, you know, I just had a really strong impression. Like, I think this guy could be a pro. I think he'd be a backup in the majors. And a lot of that was dismissed early on. Now, it turned out he did get to where he could do that. But also true that now that he's, you know, kind of been there, didn't really pan out at least so far. Not that he's completely out of the picture, but, you know, it didn't really pan out. So I guess that would be both a, a hit and a miss in the same, same player. Um, but there are other guys too that I would I would get focused on that I thought could find a way through, especially guys who were, by the way, speaking of the draft, lower round picks. A uh, guy like Jason Coates, who I saw on the lower levels, and I thought, you know, he was old for his level, and you know, he was not a high round pick. He had had a knee injury at TCU, and I thought he could be a, a major league fourth outfielder, or maybe even a little, maybe even a starter on a on a, uh, a lower tier team. Um, and he did make the majors, but you know, obviously. He turned out to not really have the ability to stick there. So he's another one that I like kind of too, for what's worth, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, you know, I'm going to actually ask Dan, because I think it would be easier for Dan to point to the ones that I missed on, that I'm because I'm having a trouble remembering the really bad ones, but I bet he remembers. So what's one that, Dan, do you remember one that I missed on that I was pushing that turned out to be nothing? Uh, well, I mean, Zavala was the one we discussed the most, and I think that actually is like, sort of a victory for you or i mean like you said it's both um that was the one we we focused on the most i think um i mean because we were doing this in preparation and looking at some of these old lists it's, it's hard to like think of them analytically because they're just so depressing a lot of times <laughs> i mean really it's true yeah. um i i know like i mean skipping through like you had charlie leesman at number six one ranking like i don't know but i mean again it's like you can throw a guy that you have really high up and, and you're wrong. 
But then you look at who else was in the system and you go, well, I mean, well, you had to pick somebody. <laughs> so, well, you guys had years too where like, you know, like, I guess what you, you guys weren't really doing this for like Beckham, me and Dan talked about, but there, there are guys with the White Sox where like they might be ranked on one list because if they do anything in the minors, the Sox either trade them or bring them up right away. Yeah. That was a trend for a handful of years there. Yeah. That, I mean, that was the one thing like, you looked at like guys like like Daniel Hudson, who was in three levels in a year, and then they traded him a year later or less than a year later. Yeah. Um, you look at like Eduardo Escobar, who we were kind of on board with from an early stage, but then he didn't really blossom until he left, um, and, and left with like no fanfare. I don't think anyone was like, "Oh no, they let Escobar go." But he ended up being a pretty good player for the Twins. Like, there's a lot of these cases where they're like you're picking from guys that are just not, uh, you know, not impact players. Like Josh Fegley was uh, pretty high on our list at one point, and then we kind of all bailed on him, and then he ended up being, you know, a solid major league backup. Like, but, I mean, it's not like you're talking about all-stars, you know. There wasn't a lot of talent in the system, and we knew that. Like Marcus Semien's probably the only one that we were way too low on. Although we, we had him on our list, but, like, that was a miss, I would say, for us. But it, probably not just us. Yeah. That was a white. I talked to a White Sox scout about Semyon when he was getting to the upper levels, and he literally told me that the White Sox scouts didn't expect him to do what he did. Right. Yeah. And he was a surprise to everybody. I want to revisit what Matt you said, and of course, no disrespect to Dan. Obviously, we we know here at Future Sox how much you know you you put your your time in and committed to where we are today, and you're still a huge help to us um, at this current time. When I reference Matt. You know, during his era as editor in chief, that's for me as a reader when I really picked up on the source of information that Future Sox was was providing. And of course, Dan, you were a part of that. But before the Matt Cassidy area uh, era, Dan, I want to ask you about what it was like building this site <laughs> with very limited readers, and of course, with the White Sox system where it stood. Because I mean, of course, there's challenges that you're facing opening up a brand new site, but when when the organization you already touched on it is dealing these sources of value within the system, it, it had to be a very unique situation to uh, kind of follow year to year. Well, the big thing, the biggest difference, I think, was social media really helped grow the site uh, in a way that was not available to us in the early years. I mean, I'm thinking, I, I wasn't an original. I might have been in the first or second year when I started contributing, maybe like 2003 or four. Jeez, that's insane. Um, How about that? Yeah. But um, <laughs> there was no Twitter. There was no Facebook. We had our own site, which I think was a really cool design. Um, and then we moved to Chicago now, 2009. Matt, were you a part of that? I was just starting when we moved over, yeah. Is that 2009? I think it was, it was 2009. No, 2011. 2011? Yeah, early 2011. 2010 is when I started writing. And 2011, the early part of the year, was when we moved. Shows what I remember. Okay. Yeah, but like our, our Twitter account would have been somewhere around that era. Um, and then we started putting more and more effort into that. And I think Matt's biggest contribution was recruiting other people to help because we had a stable when I was uh, originally on board. And then it basically was like me with one or two other people. And then it might have even been like half of a year where it was just me for a while. So once Matt got on board and put the effort into recruiting people to join and we had the social media outlet to be like, Hey, future socks is a thing. We, 
have, uh, you know, we put effort into this and we're following it as closely as anybody. Uh, and, and I think it was cool to, that we were doing that before it became more ubiquitous that people knew things about prospects. Like I think these top 100 lists you see from baseball, baseball America has been around, but like baseball prospectus, fan grass, MLB pipelines, a relatively new thing. Um, ESPN's doing top hundreds. Like there's so many rankings lists because Pete, there's an audience for it. And there always was an audience for it, but I don't think uh, the the media, I hate to use mainstream media because I feel like it's been given a bad name, but um, like the mainstream baseball media hadn't fully caught on to that or didn't have the resources to. Uh, I mean, it's just the, the ability to, I mean, we can watch games on, on MILB TV and like I mean, Luis Robert clips were on Twitter almost daily this past season. Like that world is unimaginable five, 10, 15 years ago when I was doing this stuff. So like, that's kind of the thing for me is seeing like how the technology or whatever you want to call it to make this stuff more available is, is, is really cool to see because it wasn't there before you were literally just reading box scores and, and scouting reports. And they, the scouting reports were baseball America and like some guy who had a blog about the Sally league or something, right? Like it was really, uh, really different. So I think it's cool to see what, how we've changed and how the landscape as far as following prospects has changed. Yep. Matt, let me ask you, let me ask you this. Yeah. When you were covering the affiliates really um, with your full attention, when you were at an affiliate and you saw these players in person in your experience, did anything stand out to you when you saw a specific player or is there anyone that jumps out at you when you saw them in person and maybe they translated or maybe they didn't? Yeah. You know, it's funny. One of them, I'm going to, this is, this is going to go back to partially to the question you asked about misses, if I mind. Uh, I wrote an article once a few years ago on the site, actually a number of years ago now, um, about my learning process in going from reading those reports, as Dan was talking about, to seeing the players in person and understanding the difference and how the, what the value is of seeing them play in person. I wrote this article about my aha moment. It was about this relief pitcher in the minors, the name of Dan Reminowski. Um <laughs> And there's an example of a miss, and Dan's going to laugh about this one. So I don't he was, think it was a mess. I mean, he he made it pretty high in the minors, and you were honored for yeah. like a ball. So from this, yeah, for for a young drafted guy, he did well. But you know, it was it was a, there's a whole article you can find about it, my aha moment. But it, the point is that you know, I learned through him as a lens. I think that you can read all you want, you can interview the guy, you can try to get as much information as you can, you can try to get information from scouts, but without seeing it in person, you're missing a huge piece. Um. So, you know, you're right about, you know, sometimes when you see a player, something jumps out and you can say, I mean, you know, having watched guys like, uh, uh, you know, Jimenez and Robert and a couple other guys, or not Jimenez, but I got to see Robert and I got to see a bunch of these other high talent players. You can just see guys who jump out. The other thing I want to say about seeing something in person, and this goes back to what Dan was saying about social media. Uh, a few years ago, I was a game in Winston-Salem and uh, uh I happened to be at a game that got to the bottom of the ninth inning and the dash were up uh, uh, at the plate in a tie game. And Joel Booker uh, was standing on third base. And with two outs in the bottom of the ninth inning, Joel Booker had pulled off a straight steal of home plate. Um, and to not only a straight steal of home plate that he successfully made, I mean, he's safely in, but also ended up being a walk-off. Uh, and this is something that is exceedingly rare, like something that has barely happened in professional baseball. And I happened to get a video of it, of the whole thing, uh, and on my phone. And I went running up to the booth after the game, and I showed him the video, and it was better than what the club had. It's like, we're using that. 
within hours, that video was on SportsCenter Top 10. It was on MLB. It was on Cut 4. It was on MILB. I mean, it, was, it had been seen by literally probably a million people. Uh, overall, you add up all these channels. Some of whom gave credit to Future Socks and some of whom didn't. Um, but uh, that's a different discussion. But it is, as Dan said, that kind of thing wouldn't happen before. If we had been out there in 2008, let's say, and seeing a game like that, or 2006, we, who are you going to tell? You know, like, like this, I mean, you can write about it on the website, but you didn't have all these different social media channels to make it suddenly go around the world. So you don't you don't get to have a chance to, to spread the word and all of a sudden have that name Future Sox splashed across a bunch of information everywhere. I want to throw out a Dan Romanowski quote because uh, it reminded me, uh, and I had to look it up just to be sure. Uh, Buddy Bell, who was the farm director at the time, said about Romanowski, he can hit a gnat in the ass on both sides of the plate, which is one of my favorite scouting quotes I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> It's awesome. Yeah. And, and that one stuck with me for, for apparently nine years because the, the quote, the idea yeah. on this is from 2011. So there you go, Matt. So yeah. Dan Romanowski is memorable to me for that quote alone. That's awesome. <laughs> hey, hey, Matt, I think it was, it, it might have been your last trip, like, you know, when you were still writing, when you saw Dylan Cease. And I guess I always like remember that one just because like I've only been doing this since 2016 and I jumped on board like at a really good time obviously I didn't have to you know write write some of the horror stories that you guys did years ago (laughs) um but you know there were like some some legit questions about Dylan C's like some you know he's he's a reliever question stuff like that I remember asking you flat out what you thought and you're you know you were you were uh you know right away you were like no that dude's a starter like from what you saw so I guess do you do you remember that outing Oh yeah, no, I, I I ended up seeing my think it was twice, but I remember the first the one sticking out in my head was in Winston Salem, and yeah, I mean, I mean, you, I was watching this guy, and and you know, I had my doubts before I saw him just based on what I'd read and what other people were saying. I was kind of skeptical, and then I saw him pitch a game in person, and then I interviewed him right after the game as well, and yeah, and I, I was convinced 100% afterwards. As long as this guy's healthy, he's a starter. I mean, the 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 difference in seeing what he did, the movement on the pitches, but also the variety of pitches that he could control, even at that level, even in high A. Obviously, it's different against high hitters, but just seeing the character of his pitches and the consistency of the delivery, even after missing time like he had over the years, I just said, I, this guy I'm super high confidence on. And that made my, my view of his stock shoot up. I'm trying to think if I have anybody in mind that I remember. I mean, Micah Johnson, we brought him up. Jacob May is another one that I felt like was a name of note. Never really saw him. Um, he made his debut in the bigs, didn't he? He did. Yeah. They kept, yeah, I think they, they brought him up like out of, he made the team out of spring training for like three weeks. And That's then, right. And then, yes. and, then, and then he was like done after that. How about Jordan Guerrero? Yeah. We had him <laughs> real high on a few occasions. Yeah. Jordan Guerrero's, it's a good changeup, but he just never, Never put it together. I really like Courtney Hawkins as a draft pick, but I mean, you know, I wasn't writing then, but I, I thought he was, I thought I loved that pick. And then, you know, obviously, you know, whether, whether he was going to be bad regardless or they overpromoted him, I guess we'll never know. But, you know, that, that obviously didn't work out. That's another thing, by the way, about seeing players in person is, is when you get a chance to interview them. I and mean, one of the best things I got out of all those years is, is I, I feel like I learned a lot just by talking to a lot of the players. Um, I interviewed Courtney Hawkins in August of 13 uh, at the back end of that first full pro season where he just had a horrible, horrible time of it. 
And, you know, I remember doing an interview with him and I was warned before I interviewed him, like, well, he may not take the interview. He hasn't been taking him. He's not, you know, he's not real happy. Um, and he took the interview and the second question I asked him after I started with a softball to try to warm him up. And then I, I asked him, I said, you know, do you have a plan? Do you have like something in mind about like, you know, next year you want to be at this level or where you want to go? And I remember he looked at me and he kind of sighed and he looked out in the outfield and he said, I used to, man, I used to. Wow. And this is a 19 year old kid. And I had to remind myself like 19, right? 19, he's a teenager, you know, a guy who was at the top of the world a year before that. And all of a sudden watched it all crash down. And, and, you know, that mental part of the game is important and seeing where they are at mentally tells you things. And, and I remember just being really taken aback. I felt terrible for him. He was perfectly nice. It wasn't a bad interview because he was a mean guy. Like, I just felt awful for him. Yeah, that hits uh, that hits pretty hard just thinking about that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, man, that's real. That's real stuff. It reminds me of Keenan Walker's story a little bit. Uh, he was a guy who was drafted super late, and then you know, he went back to school, and then he, or he came back to the draft, and the White Sox took him as a compensatory pick in the first round. And unfortunately, it didn't really translate. And I was able to cover Keenan Walker for one year with the uh, Windy City Thunderbolts. And I, I, I could see the tools. And he had great speed. He was an outstanding outfielder. It's just sometimes, you know, some of the mental mistakes that he had, it just weren't explainable. And when I would talk to him, it didn't kind of make sense, you know. And then at that point, it's a lot different talking to Keenan Walker, who's at the end of his career in the independent scene, as opposed to a Courtney Hawkins, who is just getting going as a professional. Um, but you could just tell. And I think that's a really good point, Matt, that, you know, the personal side of the game, I, I bring this up all the time. It matters. And for guys like Jake Berger to overcome their mental hurdles and and we're seeing what Michael Kopech is putting out to the media personally, I think it's incredibly relatable. And it's also very important to note, um, obviously, that that stuff all, all plays a factor in your development and where you are as a professional. So. Really good stuff, guys, overall. That was such a fun conversation. I don't know if anybody else has anything, but I really enjoyed it. Yeah, thank you. I'll throw one last thing in is, is you know, let's hope. I mean, these players are all in a tough place right now. These minor leaguers are recovering, right? I mean, I mean, these guys are, you know, hopefully some of them are at home, but some of them don't necessarily have families to go back to that can provide a whole lot for them. And so they're really stuck. These teams, the minor league teams, I mean, like I said, some of them aren't going to survive. So, I certainly hope everybody's keeping in mind the the human side of all this, and the, I just want to say I'm you know hoping that you know as many as many of the players can can keep at it and and, and maintain their careers as possible, and as many of the teams can survive it as possible. And I hope for the best. That was well said by Matt Cassidy, former Future Sox editor in chief. James Fox also joined us here in the conversation, as well as Dan Santa Marita. My name is Mike Rankin. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of the Future Sox podcast. Go to iTunes, Spotify, look us up. Search anchor.fm slash futuresox and you'll be able to find all of our media. Go to futuresox.com, of course, to read up on all the information related to White Sox minor league baseball. Such a fun conversation, guys. We will talk to you all next time.